The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight we have the privilege of hearing from Dr. Tim Whitmer. Dr. Whitmer is not a stranger here to Westminster. He's filled our pulpit before. Dr. Whitmer is the uh, senior pastor at St. Stephen's uh, PCA Church in New Holland, and uh, I'm grateful for him personally as he was the uh, first advisor for my doctoral work and got me set on a straight and narrow path with that. So I'm thankful for that, and we're thankful that he's here to bring God's word to us tonight. Thank you, Chris. Wish I could be here Sunday. Food sounds great. No, 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 no. Uh, um, as uh, Chris said, it was a, a real joy to have him as a student at Westminster Seminary. Just outstanding and very happy for you uh, as a congregation. Uh, but also, we at St. Stephen are very grateful to this congregation for uh, the guidance and direction that you have provided for us uh, as we've sought the revitalization of St. Stephen. So we are, we are grateful for that very much. Systematic theology is a study of the things of God. And under this heading, there are several subheadings, many of which you know. The doctrine of man is called anthropology. Uh, the doctrine of Christ is called uh, Christology. The doctrine of the last things is called eschatology. And the doctrine of salvation is called soteriology, uh, from the Greek word soter, which means savior. The text before us this evening is a primer in soteriology, if you will, in the doctrine of salvation, inasmuch as these words present to us five basic and yet imp important principles about our salvation. I think you'll see what I mean. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. This is God's holy word. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Almighty God, please guide our hearts tonight. Please speak to us. Encourage us. According to your will, in Jesus' name, amen. The words we focus on tonight are the words that Jesus spoke to one of the criminals. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. And as I mentioned, I believe that in these very few words, we have five principles of salvation. And I hope that 
the outline will be so clear that you will be able to not only remember them yourself, but to pass them on to someone else. Because the text is the outline. The principle number one is about when people can be saved. And the word is today. And the words that Jesus spoke to this man, he spoke to a man who has spent all his yesterdays and has no tomorrows. All he has is today, and he knows it. How did he get to this today? We don't know. All we know is what we read about him in the text. But he knows that he has no tomorrows. Most of us, to be honest, presume that we have tomorrow. This is not wise, it's presumptuous indeed. And for him, today will definitely turn out to be different than he ever expected. Now, there are many people who come to Christ late in life, even on their deathbeds. Those of us in pastoral ministry have had the experience of seeing people have this very experience, in particular during their final illnesses. Of course, people should sense the urgency of the gospel whenever they hear it and should respond to it accordingly, but these late conversions are legitimate. No one should presume that they will have time to repent and believe. But knowing that you have entered the affliction that will take your life gives you opportunity to believe. One of the unique experiences that I've had at our church in New Holland, being in the community that I grew up, is serving the families that I've known all my life. Over just a span of a few weeks in December and January, I had the funeral services for my childhood Boy Scout leader, and for the mother of one of my childhood best friends, for my seventh grade history teacher. Now my 10th grade history teacher and his wife were also members of the church. And uh, when uh, Mr. Yost's wife, Ruth, went to the hospital which, with what turned out to be her final illness, I had the opportunity to speak to her and I asked her if she knew she was going to heaven. And she said, no. I said, would you like to know that you could, how you can go to heaven, she said, yes. And so I told her about Jesus and I shared the gospel and she responded to it. And at the end of the conversation, I said to her, I said, Ruth, you're going, do you know you're going to heaven now? She said, yes. And I said, why? And she said, Jesus. I believe that that was a legitimate and a real conversion. But there are also other kinds of calls that we receive. For example, a woman who was mowing her lawn, a member of our church, unexpectedly stricken with a fatal heart attack. Or the call I received a couple of years ago reporting an accident in which the young mother of five children was killed in a car accident. Matthew Henry said there's one deathbed repentance recorded in the Bible, that's this one, so that no one despair, but there's only one, so that no one will presume. So if you're here this evening and you've been putting off getting right with God, don't presume tomorrow. Martin Luther wrote, how soon not now becomes never. So our text tells us about when people can be saved today. Secondly, about who can be saved today. You as you know, the gospel writers, especially the writers of the synoptic gospels, synoptic being, being seen together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they follow a similar chronology, which is why they're so-called. 
Uh, Matthew written to show uh, Jews the fulfillment of the scriptures and Christ as the Messiah. Mark was written with the Roman audience with a mind uh, of action. Luke was Greek, writing with a Greek audience, the only non-Jewish writer of the New Testament. So his focus was to try and assure anyone and everybody that it's, the gospel is for them. It's to... It's in, the Luke, in Luke's gospel that the angels appear to the shepherds, the lowly shepherds, to bring the good news. Only Luke has the parable of the Good Samaritan, looking at those who are outcasts. Only Luke's gospel has the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Only Luke's gospel has the story of Zacchaeus in chapter 19, the one that Jesus sought, the lost one sought and found. And this exchange between Jesus and the two criminals is only found here in Luke's gospel. If you look at the other people in the scene, we see that the religious leaders, you know, they conspired to bring all this about. Matthew notes that. But in terms of the non-religious people in the story, Pilate declared Jesus to be innocent. He said, I did not find this man to be guilty of any of your charges. And then there were the soldiers who were just doing their job, and later the centurion said, surely this man was innocent. But what of the two criminals? What of these two who were led away with Christ to be put to death with him? One of them echoed what others had said before. You read earlier in the text, you see that the soldiers are saying, save yourself. The religious leaders said he saved others, let him save himself. And now this one said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The text says that he railed at Jesus. Now that is the word blasphemy. And this man had no interest in Jesus, only interest in himself. But now, something quite remarkable happens, I think you will agree. The words of insult and blasphemy from the one criminal are answered by words of rebuke. Not from Jesus, but from the other criminal. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Amazing that in the midst of all the lies and deceit come these words of clarity and truth. Having the fear of the Lord is something that should characterize every single person at all times. But certainly when one is on the verge of entering eternity to face the judge of all the earth. But if you would have heard this, if you would have been standing there, you would have turned to your friend and said, did you hear what I just heard? Surprising words. Here among, above all other voices, an unlikely one coming to the defense of Jesus. Not the religious leaders, not his disciples. But this man has done nothing wrong. How did this man come to this conclusion? Perhaps he'd observed the demeanor of Jesus, the strength of Jesus, and had already heard the words of mercy from Jesus, forgiving his enemies. As another gospel writer notes, this man may well have started the day mocking Jesus himself, but something had changed. There's hope for this man. There's hope for you. Luke's gospel was written. These words are written so that not somebody's, but anybody's, and especially nobody's, can know that they have hope through Christ. This is the whosoever principle of John 3.16, isn't it? 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is the day of salvation today for you? Because you need to be saved from judgment. You need to be saved from the penalty for your sins. And so this text teaches us about when people can be saved today, about who can be saved, you. This also teaches us about the assurance of salvation. Today, you will be, will be. Jesus didn't say, today you might be or could be, but he said, today you will be with me. That's the assurance that the believer has. In John, 1 John 5, 11 and 12, we read, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Both Barbara and I have deep Mennonite roots. Three of my four grandparents were Mennonites. I'll tell you what happened later. And Barb's maternal grandparents were horse and buggy Mennonites. As a result, we have been to several Old Order Mennonite funerals. Uh, as a matter of fact, a couple years ago, at this time we were attending an Old Order Mennonite funeral for one of Barb's relatives, and I was standing beside a young Mennonite man watching the teams come in. It was cold and icy. I asked him what kept the buggies from sliding around on the ice. He pointed to the horse and buggy that next came in, and he pointed and he said, four-wheel drive. But if you know anything about Mennonite theology, you also know that it's Arminian theology. One of the marks of Arminian theology is lack of eternal assurance. In many conversations with Barb's grandfather in particular, we tried to assure him that he could know for sure that he was going to heaven, but he just wouldn't have it. And we believe, nonetheless, that he is in heaven because he believed in Jesus. But he did not enjoy the blessed assurance in this life that comes from resting in these promises. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have everlasting life. Do you have that assurance today? It's a principle of your salvation. So our text teaches about when people can be saved today, about who can be saved, you, about the assurance that you can have, will be, and about how we are saved. Today, you will be with me. There's no salvation apart from the person of Jesus Christ. There's no salvation apart from his sacrifice. Death was in the air that day, not only in Calvary, but also in the city of Jerusalem as tens of thousands of lambs were being put to death, reminding the Israelites of their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. In the final plague, you know, the firstborn of the Egyptians died, but the blood of the Passover lamb was put on the doorposts and the lentils of the Israelites, and the firstborn of the Israelites were spared from death. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, what did he say? He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover lamb was a substitute for that firstborn of Israel. Jesus came to be your substitute to take away your sins, to take your place as a perfectly obedient son of God. This is why the cross is necessary. D.A. Carson said, I fear that the cross without ever being disowned is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the centered place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. 
Whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. But let there be no doubt that a crossless Christianity saves no one. You notice what this man says. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Did you ever ask yourself, how did he know his name? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, we know there was a notice above each of the criminals with their name and their sentence. We're told this existed um, in all four gospels above the head of Jesus on the cross. You remember that the religious leaders protested because Pilate had put on his placard, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Pilate was asked to rewrite it by the Jews who said, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And remember what Pilate said, I have written what I have written. Suddenly he found the courage of his convictions. But he says, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Did he know that in the very name Jesus is found the promise of salvation? It's a name given to Joseph by the angel of the Lord, for he would save his people from their sins. Salvation is of the Lord. The Lord saves. And here you see the simplest expression of faith, do you not? This understanding was certainly limited. He had no theological depth. But this man, having heard Jesus' words, having observed the way he faced mockers and punishment, came to the conclusion that he wanted to be part of Jesus' kingdom, a part of his reign, whatever that meant. Notice that the criminal said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't say, remember me if you come into your kingdom. No, this is simple salvation and trust, which reminds us that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It tells us about the sufficiency completely of the work of Christ. This man didn't have time to join a church. He had no time to help with the ministry. He had no time to be baptized. Simple faith saved him. This is not to encourage sloth in us, but to remind us that our salvation is found through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So what we see, what we've seen, when people can be saved today, who can be saved? You. The assurance of salvation will be through whom we find salvation with me and now the fruit of our salvation. Today you will be with me in paradise. What happens to believers when they die? Paul tells us elsewhere to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in this word, this word paradise only appears one other place in the New Testament. And it's in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 7. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This word is also the word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the Garden of Eden. But there was a restriction in the Garden of Eden. Remember what it was? They're not allowed to eat the fruit of the tree of life. But now, in this paradise of God, those who follow Jesus, those who know him, those who believe in him will be able to eat of that tree of life and thus experience forever the blessedness of the salvation 
that he brings. And of course, the first word is very important. Truly. Truly. This is no joke, friends. So I encourage you. This is a little systematic theology for you. Today is the day of salvation. For you, if you will believe. And it shouldn't leave any doubts. You will be with him through Jesus Christ forever. And for those who, who trust in him, the same principle is true. You shouldn't presume on tomorrow, but if by God's grace you wake up in the morning and your tomorrow has become today, take a moment to give thanks to God, to praise him, and follow him and serve him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you that you teach us of your grace and your love. Father, thank you that the day is the day of salvation, and I do ask if there's anyone here today who's not yet trusted in you, that they would do so. That they would see that this is for them, today, you. And I pray if there's anyone here tonight who is doubting their assurance that they would stop looking at their own faults and inability and weakness and look at their sure, strong Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have the promise, the certainty of everlasting life. And help us never to forget that every blessing that we receive, every blessing that we have, is through him. And that one day we will be with you forever. Thank you for these words to this man. Today, you will be with me in paradise.